So I get to, to speak now on the last of our little mini-series on um, loving relationships. And the point of the series was that Jesus seemed to call his followers to live lives of love that were qualitatively different from the lives of regular human beings. That's not to say that his followers have a monopoly on love, but he said to them, well, don't love like everybody else. Don't love like the Gentiles. Don't love just the people who love you back. And um, love like I do. And he demonstrated the kind of love he had when he reached out and washed his disciples' feet, loved them and served them. And he gave them this command. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And that attempt to love like Jesus has changed the world. Uh, anyone listen to the Rest is History podcast? It's a great podcast. I listen to it. Um, and Tom Holland, one of the, the, the writers there, has written a number of, of great books. He's a you know, popular historian. But he wrote a book called um, Dominion, which kind of, for him as a young guy, he realized that he was really into Greece and Rome and the classics. But he realized he got his values from Jesus, from Christianity. Because the way that the world does stuff, it's not like the way the kingdom of God does stuff, the way that Jesus told us to do stuff. And even in our secular culture, we've had enough permeation of the good news of Jesus to know that there's something about relationships that's going to give room for things like restoration. I don't think that was a concept that was really very strong in a pre-Christian world. But, you know, our society believes in restoration. We have things like restorative justice. We, we feel like that um, it's possible to restore relationships. But we just don't actually do it very well. And as the people of God, and here's our theme for tonight, is restoration. How do we see restoration happen in relationships? And as a backdrop to that, it's worth saying that God is in the restoration business, isn't he? God is always restoring things. And if you read the Bible from beginning to end, you'll find that time and time again, God is active in restoring things that have gone wrong, things that have got broken. And particularly in the history of his people, God is always restoring things. He's restoring the nation of Israel when it goes off track, when it gets into trouble, when it's, it, it, it's ruined morally and physically, when it's um, dominated by foreign powers, when it's lost its way theologically. He's interested in restoring. And the very last words of the Old Testament are, you know, I'll send the great prophet Elijah to turn the hearts of the children to their parents, the hearts of the fathers to their children, lest the land be struck with a curse. Really, he's kind of talking about there's going to be a day when restoration happens. And um, the New Testament is about how restoration breaks out widely in the world through the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself, if you notice, was always restoring people. And there was a twofold element to that restoration. There was the personal restoration of individuals. Someone like Mary Magdalene, it was said of her, she had seven devils cast out of her. The Gadarene demoniac who was living by himself in the tombs, cutting himself, had a supernatural strength. Everybody was afraid of him of the leper who was outcast from society and it was an untouchable, of the Zacchaeus, the 
tax collector who nobody liked because he was a quizzling, because he, he was like working for the Romans and he was shut out. The woman at the well in Samaria who had to come out to get water by herself because she was a pariah in society. And on and on. Jesus is meeting people and restoring them, calling out of them their true identity, their dignity, the kind of people that God always wanted them to be. He'll take a Peter who's a kind of no-hope fisherman, says, you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. He'll take a Nathaniel and says, you're a true Israelite in whom there's no God. I want to call out stuff from you. But he's not just restoring people into their individual um, completeness or even into a relationship with God. He's also restoring them in community. And so much of what Jesus was about was about, in the process of restoration, putting people back into community that they had been estranged for. So take the Gadarene demoniac that we read about, this guy, this wild guy. I mean, who wants him in your community, you know? Um, when he is touched by Jesus and set free, he'd like to stay with Jesus. Jesus says, go back. Go back to your home. Go back to your family. Tell people what God has done for you there. And he kind of sends it back like a bit of a missionary, but also sends it back into community. There's a woman who is ritually unclean because she has bleeding. She's been bleeding for 12 years. Anyone she touches is made unclean. In a religious society, this is really bad news. When she touches Jesus, the Gospels record Jesus saying, power has left me. Who touched me? And, and he calls this woman out. And he does it. I think not to expose her, but to affirm that she has been made whole so that her community will accept her. He says to her, woman, your faith has saved you. And he restores her into community. When, when, when the lepers are healed, he says, go and show yourself the priest because that way you can come back into society. He's about restoring people into community. And today, God wants to restore people in community and people into community. And that is the, the subject that we're going to be looking at. So, there's lots of scriptures. But we'll just, we'll look at Luke 15 and Genesis 33, maybe for starters. You know, they're almost the same story. But one's the historical narrative, the other's the parable of Jesus. Genesis 33 tells a story of a prodigal coming home. It's a man called Jacob, and basically he's fouled up relationships. He's cheated his brother, and um, he's disappointed his father, and he's run away because he's scared of what his brother might do. And he's gone away and worked and um, labored in someone else's farm, at someone else's place. And nevertheless, God's prospered him, and he comes back home. But he's afraid of what he's going to find when he gets up. And he recognizes that he's done wrong. And Genesis 33 describes how he meets his brother, his older brother, the one who he had cheated, the one who had, he kind of like grabbed his inheritance. And um, he's so scared that he's kind of prepared lots of presents. And he's sending all his kind of flocks and herds in kind of convoy. And he's hoping to meet um, Esau in a safe place and that maybe Esau won't be too mad at him. And it describes what happens in Genesis 33. And it's just, it's a lovely restoration story, actually. Um, and, and the thing is, it's, it's Esau who's, who's the good guy, I think, in this one. Um, 
Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms round his neck, kissed him, and they wept. It's a simple little story, isn't it? But um, doesn't it remind you of the story of the prodigal son, who also kind of abused his father, really, when he said, let me have my share of my inheritance in advance, and kind of went away from home to a foreign country. And um, taking the inheritance meant he was kind of offending his older brother too because the family capital had gone. And actually, he was disgracing the whole village because land and wealth, it benefited the whole village. And he was an unpopular guy in that village. The, tells, the stories told about the prodigal were not good stories. But he, he, he came to, got into trouble in this far-off place and then basically ran out of money and ended up feeding pigs. Ritually unclean things. And he just came to his senses. He said, look, I'll be, if I was a servant at home, I'd be treated better than this. So he made his way home, and in his head, he's thinking, I'll say this to my dad. Look, I've sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be called a son. Treat me like a servant. If only I can have some shelter and earn my way back, if I can make some restitution. But while he was still a long way off, the Gospels record, his father saw him and ran to meet him and flung his arms around him. And, and it's, it's, it's the book... The boy is saying, Father, I sinned against you. He never gets to say, treat me like a servant, because his father just loves on him. And um, says, let's have a party. Here's a ring. Here's a robe. I want to cover your dirt and your nakedness. We'll kill the fatty calf. And, but the end of that story is, is really interesting. So Luke 15, let me just read it, the end of the story. It's just one of the best stories, isn't it, in, in the world ever. Um, so revealing of all of us. Luke 15. Meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? Your brother has come, he replied. Your father's killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the elder brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatty calf for him. My son, the father said, you always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. In that story, the father represents God. And he wants to restore. He wants to restore his son to a relationship with himself, but into the family home. And the elder brother is not keen on that restoration happening. It's hard for him. It feels unjust to him. He doesn't really believe. He feels offended. He feels hurt. He doesn't behave like Esau, actually, does he? He's not willing to, to forgive. And I think this story illustrates really that the restoration, though it is in the economy of the kingdom of God, though it is in the heart of the Father, though the Father is always doing that kind of thing, it's not easy even for those who are in the household of the Father to always welcome people and, and embrace restoration. 
restoration isn't easy. How are we going to find restoration happening personally? And how are we going to see restoration happen corporately? Restoration, there's a process around it. And there's power involved in it. If you, if you know someone who's in, into restoration, they've got skills and competencies and power. Claire Thompson gave a very good sermon this morning. It's probably better than the one you'll hear tonight. So, but the good news is you can go online and check it out. But she had t- talked about her sons who uh, love restoring old cars. Her favorite son, Finley, the youngest son. Um, <laughs> he's 25. He's restored 25 old vehicles. They, they just look like I love restoring things. And it was a great little talk. And she talked about tools for restoration. But restoration is a process. It's not always a quick process. Actually, God's restoration of planet Earth has not been a quick process. You know, sometimes people ask God, why don't you do it now? It's not quick. And and one reason that the the Bible gives that that restoration is not instant is because God wants to rescue everything he can out of this current universe. And that demands something from us as well as something from him. And restoration starts with forgiveness. If a relationship is going to be restored, it's restored because somebody is forgiven. And the good news about forgiveness is it can be secret and it can be unconditional. And so um, probably some of you have forgiven me, and I don't even know that you have. But I just want to say thank you, and I'm sure I deserved it. And um, some of you I've forgiven... And you don't know that I have, and you deserved it too. <laughs> you know, we, do, we forgive one another. We let one another the hook. We don't have to even tell them, because what we're actually doing is there's a little internal wound that's happened. Now, it might be a big internal wound in some of your cases. It's not really my case. And we say, I'm going to choose not to be offended. I'm, I'm going to choose not to hold that against that person. I'm going to let them off. And that just happens. That's normal. But forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. Because I can forgive you unconditionally. I can forgive you even if you've died. I can let you off the hook. But reconciliation can only happen when there's a process of coming near and hearing a story and sharing a story and saying, this is my narrative and this is your narrative. And how can we find a common narrative where we can really... Uh, release one another and restore relationship. And that's harder, isn't it? Because, you know, I can forgive you and um, it doesn't actually cost me as much necessarily as going to you and saying, brother, when you did or said that, that really hurt me. It damaged me. It left its mark on me. And we have to cope with the reaction that may be a, oh, I'm so sorry, I never realized. Or it might be, well, that's not how I see it. You did this to me, and, uh, or, or whatever it is. You know? And, and, and it, we're very vulnerable when we come to reconciliation, aren't we? We're vulnerable about 
sharing our story, we're vulnerable about admitting that we have been hurt and weak, if you like. And we're also vulnerable in terms of, are we going to be received? Is that story going to be heard? Are we going to find an agreed agenda? And the danger, and this is what I was saying in my, my first talk, really, the danger when there's hurt in life is that instead of forgiveness and reconciliation, we have self-protection and a stepping away. And when we step away from people relationally, when we step away, either we re remove ourselves from overlaps of life or we step away, we remove ourselves from intimacy, in the gap in that relationship, stuff grows, which is normally a more negative narrative than existed in the first place. And we start to believe even worse things about the person and what happened there. And that's why restoration and reconciliation, forgiveness thrive in drawing near, not stepping apart. And I said in that talk on not judging, that God himself draws near to us, which is what Jesus, the incarnation is. It's about someone drawing near to us so that we might find forgiveness and so that we might be reconciled to God. And so that process of restoration, if we want to have restored relationships, we have to draw near. I'm, I'm dealing with a relationship which has got a bit fractured at the moment. And, and that, that, um, that person that I, I need to have some restoration with has um, had some offense uh, against me and, and, um, and, we, and, and texted me to tell me so. And, uh, and I suggested that we meet up because the goal is restoration. And that's what we're doing on Tuesday. So you can pray for me. A little bit of restoration going on in my life. But it's really important that we both draw near rather than letting offense keep us apart. And I want to encourage you to be risk-taking enough to draw near to people where there's offense and to work at restoration. And it will help if at the beginning, before you go, you've done your best to forgive that person whatever they say however they react, because you're seeking something more than forgiveness. You're seeking a restoration of relationship. But I think um, restoration, I think, implies a little bit of power. The person who restores something is somebody who has power to do the restoration. And, and very often, restoration happens where we are more powerful than the person who needs to be reconciled to us. And it may be that the power that we have rests on the fact that our internal security, our internal, I'm going to be okay with this, our internal relationship with God, our spiritual maturity, give us a bit of power so that we can go into that situation um, with some spiritual and social maturity. But when we do that, it's important that we, we, we go there with empathy and with a mindfulness of our own vulnerability too. We don't go there in a patronizing way. And I think restoration when you feel patronized is not ideal. I don't know if you've ever felt that, have you? You kind of, you wanted to, to do a relationship and the person with the power that where you want the reconciliation is treating you like they're your dad or your mum. And it just makes you a bit cross. Anyway, it says in Galatians 6, verse 1, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also 
may be tempted. And there's something about um, the need for restoration that though there may be power there, we're also, also on a level playing field that we all need restoration. The restoration that I'm trying to offer you is only a mirror, really, of the restoration I've received from God. And it's actually in his power and in, in his mercy that I've got the grace to be able to reach out to you. So if we've got power to restore people, let's not patronize in the process. Let's try and empathize in the process if we can. But I think that um, there may be some things which make restoration tricky, either personally or communally, where there's been a loss of trust. One of the things that I'm very grateful to God for at the moment in Woodlands is that we've been able to see among us a number of people from the recovery community. And if you're in that community tonight, um, I want to say thank you so much for having taken the steps of coming along to church, which for some of you probably wasn't your first port of call. And also I want to say thank you because I know that a number of you are teaching us things about restoration. And I think one reason for that is that the, the recovery community, the 12-step community, which I know, know a little bit about, is something that invests in restoration. It's not just about recovery. It's about a kind of greater wholeness than that, not just personal, but community as well. And if you know, if you've ever, ever read the, sort of any of the 12 steps or read the big book or all that kind of stuff, you'll know that there are different steps that people can take to help in that recovery and uh, a restoration. It starts with admitting powerlessness. That's really well known. And it includes taking a rigorous moral inventory where you look at yourself and think, what have I done that's wrong, that's hurt someone else? And it looks, too, about how can I make some restitution to people that I've wronged? That's actually a step. And that now, there's a kind of tension here, isn't there, between the unconditional forgiveness that the Bible talks about, but also what it means to make restitution where we've been wronged. And sometimes when people are going to come back into community, restitution actually is appropriate. And it's not something that we demand, but it's something that people can offer as they are seeking to rebuild trust. Now, the nature of um, some forms of addiction, which we're all vulnerable to, including me, is that addiction can make liars out of us. And addiction can make us deeply untrustworthy. I remember um, a guy who was um, a, um, a using addict. He was um, a lovely guy. He used to come here quite often. And uh, one time, he hid in the false ceiling that we used to have in the toilets. And after we'd all locked up the church, he kind of nicked all the microphones <laughs> and um, took them off and sold them because he wanted to score. And... Um, but he used to come around my house quite a lot. And I just had a suspicion it was him, you know. <laughs> so I just said, did you steal all our microphones? And he looked at me and said, David, if I thought you'd think that about me, I would never come around here. <laughs> and I just, oh, okay. Anyway, a few months later, he wrote to me from prison. <laughs> I said, it was me. <laughs> I did do that. Um, because the honest truth is that sometimes our, 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 our compulsions, our addictions can make liars and, and cheats of all of us. Me included, you know. So um, how do we rebuild trust when that's happened? Zacchaeus was somebody who 
needed to be restored to society. He had been collecting taxes for the Romans. That was like, you know, you're in Ukraine at the moment, you're working for Putin. And he'd also been over, he probably had some heavies and was extorting money out of people and, and getting rich off, oh, taxes, come on, a bit more. And when Jesus went to his house, Jesus drew near to him. That's, that's, what, that's where it all started. It meant Jesus drawing near, going to his home. And Zacchaeus said, I'm sorry. And um, if I've cheated anyone, I will pay them back four times. And Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house because he's not this man to a child of Abraham. He was being restored in community, but he had proactively decided, I'm going to make some restitution here. And this is going to build a trust with my community. We've got some challenges uh, welcoming people into community at times. What would you say if you're a church leader and you had a, a phone call from probation? They said, so-and-so is just coming out of um, prison. He's, uh, he's on the sex offenders register. He's committed offenses against children, uh, but he's got a faith experience would like to come to your church. What would you do? It happens to me quite often. What do you do? What does restoration look like when people have done things that our society say are on the unforgivable spectrum? Is anyone unforgivable? Do we believe in restorative justice? Do we believe in rehabilitation? How do we manage it? And honestly, if you're wise, you work towards restoration and trust but you do it with your eyes open and with process and with really good boundaries. And so, actually, if we think it's appropriate for someone to come to this church who's that kind of background, well, first of all, we want to be wise and compassionate. And second of all, we want to ask the question, actually, what are you looking for? Are you looking for fellowship and friendship? And is a church with lots of children the best church to come to? But maybe we think it is the best church to come to. So if we think about what happens then, well, there's a contract that we make with you that we will also supervise. And there will be some chaperoning and a whole range of stuff. You know? There's a whole range of process that we have in because we believe in restoration and we believe in building and rebuilding trust, but we also believe in wisdom and management and process. That's really important. And it might be, that's an extreme example, and um, in, in a sense, you know, I've, I've put it out there as a public thing, but I think it's appropriate to put out things in public sometimes to explain how we operate as a community. That we're dealing with tensions, we're dealing with the welcoming and receiving of an individual, and trust and protection of a community. And what I can forgive and restore on my own isn't the same as where I have a responsibility for a body and community of people. But we can't just abandon people, can we? And what about church leaders that need restoring? What a difficult subject that is. We have seen in my lifetime some extraordinary 
betrayals of trust from church leaders. And that is so difficult for churches to look at restoration. What does restoration look like in any case? Does it look like you could be part of a community? Or does it mean to say that your gifts will never be used again in a church context? How do we handle those kind of things? I want to say restoration has got to be possible for everyone. But we also have to acknowledge the hurt and disappointment of a community. And, and I guess in restoration, we also want to acknowledge our parts in what went wrong. And sometimes in restoration, what goes wrong is what we've done as a community to a leader. Where we've put them on a pedestal, and where we've isolated them, and where we've accepted things that we should have challenged, and where we've not spoken into their lives. And so restoration needs to happen gently. And um, my feeling as a church leader is, gosh, there but for the grace of God go I, because there's some vulnerabilities and tensions and challenges and problems that I'm absolutely capable of failing and falling. So thank you for praying for me, and thank you for holding me up, and thank you, God, for being a resource to me where... You've kept me from my worst self, where my folly has not had all the repercussions that it could have done. I don't know whether it's true for you. Restoration happens because we need restoration. I remember Claire sharing a picture at one of our um, special services. I think it was for... Um, Good Friday, or might have been a lament service of an artist restoring a picture. Just as hours of painstaking work. Hours of painstaking work to restore something. Sometimes restoration takes hours of painstaking work. Forgiveness is immediate and overnight. Restoration demands that the person being restored is working on their stuff. The person doing the restoring is working on their stuff. The community that's involved in restoration is working on their stuff. And we've all got a bit to play in that. Final thing I want to say, and it's about trust. Jesus entrusted himself to people he knew were going to let him down. Jesus entrusted himself to untrustworthy people. Jesus entrusted himself to somebody who when he promised something, Jesus said to him, actually in a few hours you're going to break that promise. And Jesus restored that man. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? He's called Peter. He restored him and he kept restoring him. Peter was so full of shame that he thought, I'm giving up. I'm going to go back to fishing. I'm not, you know, it's all over. Jesus spoke to him in a failed fishing venture and said, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. He restored him. You know, 
Jesus restored those disciples who were hiding behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. And he breathed and said, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. If you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. Jesus entrusted himself and his ministry and his mission to untrustworthy people. And when they failed, he restored them. Do you know that Jesus is still doing that? Today, Jesus entrusts his mission to untrustworthy people like us. And every now and then we fail. But God wants to restore us and restore his church. And he can do it. So there's some stuff um, that may not be very practical, very helpful to you, but I, I'd, I'd love us to pray in a moment too. So I want to try and, and nail in, in a couple of practicalities around how we might want to restore to what I've said. Restore, respond. First of all, today, if you yourself know that you need restoration, the good news is God's up for it. And he'd like you to go on a process of restoration with him. And you can learn a lot. You, you may probably, you know, it's a very small minority of us who are part of the 12-step um, communities, if you like. But we can all learn from those. Why not get hold of those steps and think, hmm, maybe I could do with that. Maybe I could do with looking at myself and thinking, hmm, let's, let me take a moral inventory. There's a, there's a, one of the chapters of the Bible I love is in, in, in Job. I'm not quite sure which chapter it is. It might be Job chapter 30. But Job does this kind of rigorous moral inventory. He says, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. And he goes on, he talks about his relationship with his servants, even his relationship with the fields and the land. He says, I've, I've been a good ecologist. But it's a rigorous moral inventory. But why do we do that? I think, God, and do I need to restore some relationships? Have I hurt someone? Have I let someone down? Have I betrayed someone a little bit? And that may help us in restoring other people because Jesus said, didn't he? Forgive as we have been forgiven. And if I recognize my need for restoration, that, that will help me to reach out my hands to other people who need restoration. And so let's work at those narratives, those stories where people need, need um, restoration. Let's listen well to them and let's offer them our, our love as best we can. It may be that we take some time. You may be in a marriage where there's been betrayal. You may be listening online and thinking, oh gosh. Do you know marriages can be restored? Ultimately, it's not an affair that kills a marriage, though it helps. It's hardness of heart that kills a marriage. And, and God can restore even from something like that with being a betrayal. Let's do some work. Let's do some deep sharing. Let's know ourselves better in the process of building narratives where we draw near to one another when we talk. And, and tonight, if you need restoration, let it start with the Father's love for you, that he knows you like the father of the prodigal son. And, and, and let's, let us pray for you. And out of that, being accepted by God, maybe there'll be a humility that allows us to accept one another. But let's also, as a, as a community, say, God, where do we want to build relationships with people who are on the outside, and how can we create pathways of welcome and receptivity? And can the Holy Spirit be involved in doing that? Because ultimately, I think this restorative stuff is the kingdom of God kind of thing. 
And it's lovely to feel that we can all be part of this new heavenly kingdom that's breaking in on planet Earth so that people feel that's the place where I can finally find a home, where, I can f where, where there is hope. We can do that together. Let me pray. Father God, I want to thank you that um, I can say today I'm forgiven and that uh, you've brought me with a price that brought me back from a brink and you've um, called me your father and uh, you've put your arms around me and clothed me with your righteousness and given me authority that I didn't deserve and invited me into the banqueting place of your own house and and I want to pray, Lord, that you'd help me to be someone who's so in that economy of your kingdom that I can make room for other people and give that away. But Lord, will you send your spirit to us tonight so that we can know what it means to live restored lives? I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>